0: Thanks, Candice. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Back in 2015, Shelley and the kids and I were on this wonderful big family adventure in, in the US. It was a driving holiday, and it feels like another lifetime, I've got to say. We had arrived in LA early one Sunday morning uh, had picked up a car at the airport and we were driving north to a place called Morrow Bay. That was our first stop and we were going to be meeting some friends there. And, and I was pretty used to driving in, in the US, but the prospect of LA traffic made me a little bit nervous. I'd never done that before. So I made sure in preparation that I had all of the maps downloaded onto my phone so that it was going to work offline. I tried that before, that had worked. So I'd done the preparation and I was good to go. All I had to do was, was to get from LAX, from the airport, and out to the Pacific Coast Highway and then just drive north. But for some reason, no sooner had we left the airport and my phone Stopped working, I can't remember what the problem was, but it just wasn't working. And so there we were driving on the wrong side of the road after a 14 hour flight in LA traffic with no GPS. And so I'd had a plan and I thought that I was prepared, but now what I needed and now what I was looking for was a sign. Am I where I'm meant to be? Am am I even going in the right direction? When am I supposed to make a turn? I needed a sign. Shelley will attest to the fact that I was very calm and that I was very rational throughout this incident. I quietly turned and suggested that the kids might lower their voice as I scanned the 12-lane interchange looking for the off-ramp to the Pacific Coast Highway, I needed a sign. And of course, there were plenty of signs and we found our way up the coast, no problem. I don't know why she made such a big fuss about it, really. Um, but sometimes when we are in unfamiliar territory, when our plans aren't quite up to the task, when when we know that where we are is probably not where we're meant to be, what we need is a sign. And that's what our passage Is about today. So just to recap, Jesus has had his encounter with the woman at the well. He's had his teaching moment with the disciples. The townspeople have come back in uh, to hear from Jesus directly. Many believed, they stayed there and ministered and taught for a few days, and this is where we pick up. The story. Now, I'm not going to put the passage up on the screen. Rather, you can look at it on your own device in your own Bible or just imagine the scene for yourself. But I'm reading from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, and I'm reading from the ESV. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified. That a prophet has no honour in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So when he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So when he came to Galilee, so we're on a journey here. Let's get ourselves located. Um, if you remember, right back in chapter one, we find John the Baptist is baptising at Bethany beyond the Jordan. And if you've got a map on your screen at the moment, you'll see a little red dot down at the bottom of the map, and it's just at the top of of the Dead Sea. Um, That's where John was baptising, and that's where Jesus recruits his first followers. Andrew, Simon, Peter, and John. From Bethany, they then travelled up to Galilee, probably not in a straight line, and recruiting Philip and Nathaniel on the way to Cana, and that's where Jesus had turned the water into wine at the wedding in chapter two. So you might see, you might, might be able to see there just how close Cana is to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. From Cana, they then travel a short distance to Capernaum in Galilee, and that's where they rest after the wedding. Then from Capernaum, they travel back down to Jerusalem in Judea for the Passover. And we just heard about that then in this passage. But in chapter 2, John says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name, for they saw the signs that he was doing. From Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples went out into the Judean countryside. This was in chapter 3. They're resting again after ministry. And now too, now Jesus and the disciples are the ones that are doing the baptising. They were on their way back to Galilee when they stopped in Sychar, in Samaria, and that's where we met the woman at the well. And now today we arrive back in Cana in Galilee. And this is familiar territory for Jesus. And it turns out that there is a problem with familiarity. A prophet has no honour. In his hometown, Uh, right back in chapter one, in verse eleven, John wrote, "He came to his own, but his own did not receive him." And so the Galileans, they they were familiar with Jesus, with the Jesus that they knew, that they thought they knew. But now news about the wedding feast, it's probably starting to spread and many of the Galileans had been down uh, in Jerusalem for Passover and had seen the signs that he was performing and so now their local boy is becoming something of a celebrity and so the Galileans welcomed him. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So who is this official? Some translations will say a nobleman. Some will say a royal officer or a royal official. He's probably a member of Herod's court. He could be a Jew. He could be a Gentile. He could be a Roman official. It doesn't say. He's probably not the centurion that appears in the synoptics. The Greek word here is basilikos, and it means a royal officer, a royal official. So this guy had some serious rank. It is quite possible or even probable that he was a member of the nobility, that he's a member of a noble family, of a royal family. And so this means that his rank is by virtue of his family lineage rather than through merit. And this would mean that his son is a royal heir. And so there's a lot at stake here. Because this boy is at the point of death. So when this nobleman hears that, that Jesus, Jesus the miracle worker, uh, has returned from Jerusalem, he travels the 25, 30 kilometres from Capernaum to Cana and he asks Jesus to come back and to heal his son. Some translations will say that he begged Jesus to come. But I think that a ranking royal official is very unlikely to beg a carpenter come rabbi for anything. The best translation of the word eroteo is to beseech. It's to entreat. And these, these aren't words that we use very much, but it is an urgent formal request an urgent formal request from a royal official. Now, there is absolutely desperation here because his son, his heir, is at the point of death. But it's unreasonable to think, I think, that this nobleman had laid aside his authority and taken the posture of a beggar. Come and heal my son. This is the desperate, but formal request of a royal official, somebody with rank, somebody with authority and probably somebody with expectations to match. But Jesus says to him, Jesus says, unless, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It seems like a strange response. My son is dying and you're talking about belief. Unless you see signs, and the grammar here is plural, unless you all see signs and wonders. And it sounds like a rebuke. And Jesus is directing this at everyone, not just the nobleman. He says, unless you all see signs and wonders, You all will not believe. And we hear this, I hear this, and think, well, Jesus is really cranky about this. We really should not need a sign. We should just be able to believe. We are made in the image of God, we have eternity in our hearts. All the information we need is right here in Scripture. We shouldn't need signs. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Amen? And so we think that the solution is to try our hardest to believe with the information that we've got. It is up to us to believe without the need for signs, to have faith without revelation. But I think Jesus was right. I can imagine him. You, you guys are lost. You're blind. You're broken. You are like sheep without a shepherd. Unless you see a sign, unless you experience a revelation of who I am, you will not believe. And I think he's right. I think he is simply stating a fact. We are not going to truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he has said he has done without a personal revelation. I am not going to anchor my entire worldview in the idea that Jesus is God and that my life is in him without a sign. It's foolishness. And John knows this. You'll remember, and we've said this a number of times, that that the purpose of John's gospel is that you may believe. And John seems completely clear that signs are what lead to that belief. Look at this. We've looked at this a couple of times. John 20 verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Hold on to that pattern. Sign, believe, life. So what are signs, signs? Again, you might remember this from a couple of weeks ago. We looked at this. A sign, a semeion, is a miracle. It is a marker. It's an indication. Signs communicate something. Signs communicate a truth beyond themselves. German theologian Rudolf Bultmann, he defined semeion as the activity of the revealer. So these signs that John has chosen reveal ultimate truth. They reveal ultimate truth about the ultimate revealer. If you remember the wedding at Cana, Jesus subtly revealed himself, revealed his glory. The passage says, pointing toward the new covenant, which he would bring about. And if you remember the revelation to the Samaritan woman, Jesus just came, tra- came straight out and revealed himself as the Messiah. I am he, he said. And so these signs and wonders, they reveal truth about who God is, about what he is like, about what it is that he's doing and they reveal truth about what it is that he will ultimately achieve. Bultman goes on and he says that, that a sign, a simeon, is a disturbance of what is familiar. The purpose of a sign is to disrupt. The purpose of a sign is to stand out. It is to cut through what is familiar it is to interrupt our current direction and point us in a new direction, toward a new destination. That's, that's what signs do. Signs demand a response. Am I going to change direction based on what or based on who this sign is revealing? John knows and Jesus knows that you and I need a sign. We need something to, to disrupt the familiar, something to point us in the direction of ultimate reality. We need a personal revelation or we will not believe. Now, we can agree, we can agree in theory without experiencing science. We can hedge our eternal bets based on the information that we've got. We can come to some rational position regarding a set of theological propositions. We can even try to prove that we believe by striving to behave in certain ways. But none of these things are belief. Not the way John sees it. Belief, and we can call it faith, it's the same word, or even better, faithfulness, is a deep inner conviction of something true but out of sight. Something ultimate but hidden that demands that we turn and point our lives toward it. Belief demands that we change direction. And the word that that the Bible uses for this change of direction is repent. It simply means turn around, change direction. Take a look at this. Kev quoted this last week in in the message. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honour at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. So stop your obsession with this earthly reality and Point yourself in the direction of heaven. Orient yourself towards that life because even though it's hidden, that life is what is ultimately real. This visible change of direction is the product of revelation more than it is ever going to be the product of information alone. And you know that that's true. We don't overcome our ingrained patterns and habits and beliefs without revelation. We need a sign that slices through the familiar, confronts us with our own desperation and exposes a greater reality. And so every sign, every wonder that we see here in John is a revelation that points beyond itself toward the ultimate reality of the kingdom of God, toward light and life and love, toward unity, toward freedom. Revelation points to the ultimate reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we, you and I, are to live now a life that aligns with that reality We are to live a life that participates right now in our real life, a life hidden with Christ in God. This participation, this life in him, you can call it obedience if you want. This participation is the evidence of belief. Look at this. This is John writing in 1 John chapter 2. He says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is not a directive. This is an observation. Life in him, participation, obedience. This is the observable evidence of belief. And belief is the consequence of revelation. Do you get that? Revelation precedes belief, and belief precedes obedience. And my goodness, don't we get that back the front. We can think, I can think. If I'm obedient, if I really try, if I'm really good, if I'm really spiritual, if I can convince God, or more accurately, if I can convince myself that I believe, then perhaps... He will reveal himself to me. That is not what we see here. Revelation precedes belief. Belief precedes obedience. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think Jesus is right. And meanwhile, the official seems pretty much unfazed by this rebuke. And he carries on. And this time, it doesn't really sound like he's asking The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus says to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So the official is being respectful here. He says, Sir, Master, Lord, come down. The word is literally descend, which is pretty cool. Sir, come down. Uh, And Jesus is not put off by this need for signs. And nor is he offended by by the official's forthrightness or his sense of entitlement. In fact, he seems completely okay with it. Go. Your son will live. Now, the official did not quite get what he asked for. He wanted Jesus to come with him, but he believed the word That Jesus spoke. And John is being really precise here. It was the word that was spoken that the official believed, and he believed enough to act, enough to turn around and point himself in the direction of the sign. Verse 51 As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. This is what servants do. They bring good news. Remember the servants at the wedding. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. So here we are, the seventh hour, the number seven again perfection. Now some translations say, and I don't know why they do this, um, will say one in the afternoon. Now the Jewish day starts at 6am, so 1pm is the seventh hour, the perfect hour. Some commentators will make a big deal out of the idea that this official had really taken his time to get home. If he was on a horse, and that's possible, probable, it's only a couple of hours Um, even at a walk, and he would have been home before night. But this is the next day. Some will try to work out if this story goes across three days. And there are definitely metaphors and hyperlinks at work here between the royal son and Jesus himself. Your son will live. We're meant to join the dots here. And it's interesting that the other times that Jesus rebukes people for needing signs and wonders, he also draws the link uh, with his own death and resurrection. We see this in the synoptics. In Matthew chapter 12, 38, we read this, "'Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, "'Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you.' But he answered them, "'An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign.' But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that's us. We are a wicked and adulterous generation. This is why we need a saviour. And yes, we really do need a sign. And Jesus has given us the ultimate sign that points to ultimate reality – In the empty tomb. And all other signs point to that reality because that reality is life. Your son will live. Death is defeated. It was at the seventh hour that the fever left him. And so here is the revelation the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live and he himself believed John's punchline is not just that the boy was healed but that it resulted in belief and not just belief in the word that was spoken but in the one who spoke it he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that John that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. And so first of course was turning water into wine at the wedding. And the outcome of that first sign was that the disciples believed. And now the outcome of this sign is the belief of the official and his whole family. And it's interesting that we've gone from perhaps the the happiest family moment in a wedding to potentially the saddest family moment with the prospect of the death of a child. Significant times of change, of crisis, times of disruption in our life, whether it's a wedding or a death or a health scare, moving town, a significant job change, whether we're trapped in poverty and abuse, whether it's burnout, significant challenges and transitions are when the old patterns of belief are disrupted. Mark Sayers, the pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, he he says that transitions are the gateways to renewal. Transition, challenge, crisis, disruption, these are our growth points. When we know that we need to upgrade our sense of reality, The old patterns will no longer do. And we can tell when we look back over time that we grow from transition to transition. We grow from disruption to disruption. We are formed from revelation to revelation to revelation. And the safe and the comfortable and the familiar does not lend itself to revelation nor to belief. And nor to participation. At the start of this passage, Jesus testifies that a prophet has no honour in his hometown. These two signs that John records so far, they are both in Galilee. They are both in Jesus' home region. And perhaps more than anyone, these were the people who would not believe without a sign. It's just Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, the chippy from Berkeley bar. And so it's interesting that even beyond all of the symbolism of a royal son who defeats death, of a wedding that prefigures the new covenant, beyond the symbolism, Jesus chose two of life's most significant transitional moments to reveal something of himself. Jesus knows that it's in those deep life transitions. It's in those times of disruption when the old beliefs prove themselves to be flawed, prove themselves to be broken, prove themselves to be insufficient, these are the times when we are ripe for revelation. Perhaps that's you today. No one's looking for a sign in the midst of comfort, in the midst of complacency, in the midst of familiarity. I don't need a sign if I'm driving from here to Arena. I'm not looking for a sign if everything's going well, if I'm powerful or wealthy, if I'm in good health, if life is on an even keel, if I'm self-sufficient. If the patterns of this world are working for me, then I'm not looking for a new one. And Jesus himself said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus came for those who know they need a saviour, those who are desperate for a reality upgrade. I'm going to try to stitch this together and I hope that it's helpful. And I'll close with this. Transition, challenge, disruption and an acknowledgement of brokenness seems to proceed. It seems to provide the conditions for revelation. A revelation is not a party trick to convince us that God is real as if he bears the burden of proof for his existence. Rather, a revelation is some manifestation of ultimate reality. Revelation is a sign that that breaks in and reveals something of the character and of the identity of Christ. A revelation is a sign that points us in the direction of our real life in him. And in the shadow of this ultimate reality, our own broken familiar reality is also exposed. This revelation of reality, it leaves us with a choice. Will we turn from our brokenness? Will we point ourselves in the direction of what or in the direction of who is ultimate? Will we believe? Will we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because it is by believing, by pointing ourselves in the direction of reality that we have life in His name. By belief We have life. By belief, we participate. We join in the life, the light, the love of ultimate and eternal reality, life in his name. Unless we see signs and wonders, we will not believe. I think it's true. We need a revelation of ultimate reality to break in, to expose our brokenness for what it is, so that we point ourselves in the direction of eternity and that we live lives shaped by that reality. Lives that bear witness to the kingdom of God. Lives that participate in his life. Perhaps you are hungry for that revelation right now. Perhaps you are in that place where your current broken reality is screaming for revelation. That's okay. Or perhaps by His Spirit, perhaps you are the revelation that somebody needs this week. Maybe you are the miracle. Maybe you are the sign that somebody needs. Let me pray. Our Father God, King of heaven and earth, we confess to you that we are broken and that we feel trapped in a familiar reality and we know that that is not all that there is. Our desire, Lord, is that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would reveal that kingdom reality to us so that we might believe, so that we might point ourselves in the direction of that good, beautiful and true ultimate reality in you. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.